God damn it. I don't remember putting any bagpipes on the soundboard. And Shaw has control of it. Anyway. Oh, damn it. Uh, yeah. No, 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 don't, don't, don't touch that again. <laughs> a very good day to all of you, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between. Welcome to episode three of My Lord, That Depends. I'm your host, Morgan, and with me today is your co-host, Dr. Michael Shaw, otherwise known as Shaw, your usual co-host. <laughs> your usual co-host, Khalid, is unavailable because he is too busy with work to record this episode. Accordingly, he has been extraordinarily renditioned to an undisclosed location for gentle questioning. I really don't know where he is. I do not happen to own a facility at a picturesque bay in Cuba, or he would be there. Sure. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Morgan. Um, uh, first question. Uh, how do you forget where you've extraordinarily renditioned someone to? Uh, it's in the name. It's, it's, it says undisclosed location. And don't try to logic me. It's my oh. job to logic people. <laughs> it's just like the time we made you neck half a pint of gin and you wore a pod as a helmet with Alan and ran around in a pair of shit nights. I'll have you know that those were protective pots which prevented blunt force trauma, which happens to a lot of people who have been forced to down half a pint of gin. Well, that's definitely a risk factor. I forgot to mention, um, yeah, sure, he's a doctor and he patches people like me up. He's seen some interesting things in the emergency department, I think. Um, seen this and that. This does not constitute medical advice. Uh, no, leave the disclaimers to me. Again, you're not the lawyer here. <laughs> anyway, today we're talking about the laws of war from the early Middle Ages up to the Crusades. Deus Volt? No, no, Deus non Volt. Everyone was an asshole. Speaking of the early Middle Ages and the Crusades, didn't you do some late medieval fencing thing that uh, has ended you up in ED at least once? Uh, yes, I got bonked on the head of a longsword. I uh, seem to remember you got lucky and you uh, narrowly dodged an orbital fracture. No, there's nothing orbital about that hit. That, that sword was no any escape velocity. Well, um, that wasn't quite what I was talking about. There's this bone somewhere above your eye. What? What? Why is a bone called an orbital? It shouldn't be. And stop trying to logic me. Again, I'm trying to be facetious. And here I thought this was a serious podcast. We're very serious about 50% of the time. Ah, yes. And the other 50% of the time, you're confusing serious putty and silly putty. What do you mean, serious putty? C4. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we'll eventually get to high explosives. But for now, we're still busy with people doing old-timey murder with spears and shit. Well, fine. I guess you should probably start talking about how horrible people are then. I really can't imagine the sort of injury they caused each other without modern medicine. Well, it was pretty nasty business all around. Things didn't get better, and in some respects, they arguably got worse in the early Middle Ages compared to antiquity. That's why it's called the Dark Ages, collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And that's pretty much the start of uh, the time period we're looking at. As with the previous episode, we'll break it down to segments. And we'll start off with an episode about the laws of war relating to combatants, or rather the lack of laws, after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. There won't be that much in terms of the rules of combat in this episode because the developments during this time period more or less only served to set the stage for the laws regulating combatants in later eras. There really wasn't much regulation at this time. So, on the last episode, we started with the concept of honourable warfare being a custom of war in certain civilizations, and we will not really be going back there because people started to wage war with a little bit more intelligence. And when I say intelligent, there wasn't really so much of a taboo against fighting dishonorably. I like the idea that uh, honor and intelligence are kind of diametrically opposed. Um, have you not heard of the Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare? 
Sir Christopher oh, Lee. Yes. yes, we quite like fighting wars that way. It's fighting. If you're fighting fair, you're fighting wrong. That was the tagline for the on the AIM9X Sidewinder advertisement I saw quite a few years ago. <laughs> on this episode, we're going to be looking at how the various nations use laws and customs to create combatants for their wars, how they distinguished friend and foe, and how national armies eventually arose, which provided fertile ground for a return to the Roman attitude on informal combatants. And as stated, I, I like the way that you call them informal combatants, as if you know, the, the formal combatants are showing up in... Uh... A suit and tie, and the informal ones are just turning up uh, on the on the night. Hey, see how things go. You're actually not far from the truth there. Informal combatants kind yeah, of show yeah, up, yeah. and what you have these formal combatants in uniforms and um, kind of a set color scheme, so you know who to who you should be stabbing. Like well, that's, that's if you if if your boss is named Saladin, you want to hit the guy wearing a white shirt with a red cross on it. You don't want to be hitting the guy wearing a crescent, or you'll get into a lot of trouble. <laughs> And and if they're not wearing collars uh, or if they've got trainers on, then they're just not allowed in the field, right? Yeah, exactly. Any officer who goes into battle without his sword is improperly dressed. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, we'll start this episode in the Dark Ages, right after the Western Roman Empire fell. There were three main groups here that I'll be talking about. The Byzantines, aka the Eastern Roman Empire, the Vikings, and the Muslims. The Byzantines, being the Eastern Roman Empire and all that, tried to continue the Roman tradition of conscription. Men over the age of 18 years, being at least 5 feet and 6 inches tall, were liable to be conscripted into the army. I mean, 5 feet 6 inches is not very tall, but, you know, this is all-timey tall, so I guess people have grown. And um, Napoleon would have been exempt. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't actually know how tall Napoleon was, but apparently he wasn't exactly short for his era. Here for, his, for his time, for his time. Yeah, for his time. Yeah, well, unlike the Western Romans, however, the Byzantines developed a system of espionage and were in the beginning quite careful with their use of mercenaries. The Byzantines were quite alive to the problems of using mercenaries, and the em Emperor Leo IV stated, If you are using foreign troops, it is prudent that they be fewer in number than your own, especially if you are defending your country. For if they are more numerous, they may seize it for themselves. Those who sell their service for money may allow themselves to be corrupted by a larger sum to turn against you. Yeah, well, it seems like pretty good common sense. Very um, Byzantine. <laughs> yeah, it is Byzantine, literally. And hmm, an argument can be made that it sounds a lot like lawyers. <laughs> I, I need to have at least as many lawyers with my team as I hire in case they turn against me. This is good advice. This is good advice. Yeah, pay your lawyers more. <laughs> so... Um, this warning would eventually come round to haunt the Byzantines on multiple occasions. Based on the records, it appears that the Byzantines used both regular national soldiers and hired mercenaries as recognized formal combatants. They didn't really distinguish them. But at several points, these mercenaries distinguished themselves by participating in certain activities which their employers didn't want them to. An example of the this was <laughs> the extracurricular activities. Of the mercenaries. So one particularly famous mercenary company was the Grand Catalan Company. They went on a bit of a rampage against Byzantine citizens in Adrianople. That was so infamous that the monks of Mount Athos actually prohibited Catalan citizens from entering until the year 2000. It's pretty recent. Uh, long time it's to hold not a like grudge. they bear a grudge, though. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... The second lot of people that are best described as reprobates, who made the Dark Ages really dark, was the Vikings. They ran around looting and pillaging wherever they went. 
Unlike the Byzantines, these guys were pretty much all informal fighters. They didn't really have this whole no, uniform. These guys had yeah. yeah, no, definitely no colors and definitely no uniforms. You can't you can't look at a field of um, a certain color and go right. These guys, these guys are these guys are soldiers. <laughs> you, they just look like a bunch of um, ragtag Scandinavian men, probably with a lot of facial hair. And roughly running in the same direction. Roughly running in the same direction. And um, they're probably carrying some rather scary looking weapons. Anyway, they were notorious freebooters and they sold their services to the English, the Italians, and even the Byzantines. They even somehow managed to wangle their way into becoming the elite guard of the Byzantine emperors, the Varangian Guard. Honorable warfare was also definitely chucked to the wayside by this bunch of pirates. Their god of war, Odin, was also the god of deceit and their military operations were closely linked with trickery. They were also ravenous opportunists. After being hired in England, they didn't pack up after their contract ran out and decided to stick around. The York of today was formerly known as Jorvik, a Viking town. Essentially, culturally, it appeared that for Vikings, being an informal combatant was very much a way of life. So just a wee, wee question. I thought that the uh, Norse god of uh, trickery and treachery was, was Loki. Uh, that's um, what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has led me to believe. So there's more than one god with a reputation for deceit and trickery, and Odin's one of them. They're all, they're all treacherous. Yeah, I mean, you had the brainless oaf, um, otherwise known as oh, Thor. Thor. <laughs> yeah. yeah, big brainless oaf. But... Big man with hammer. Big man, hammer, go straight line, don't no make turn. Uh, however, with Odin, he's an ambi turner. Therefore, he is a lot more <laughs> treacherous. <laughs> so the final bunch of people we're going to talk about are the Muslims. Muhammad, he lived from 570 to 632 CE. He seems to have fought around 19 military campaigns. His vision of a complete ban on violence was to be brought about by violence. He practiced conscription. According to the Quran, when it is required, fighting is required for you as much as you dislike it. One special bit about Muslims, however, is that they blended formal and informal combatants. Both were part of their legal definition of combatant. From fairly early on, the Muslims used informal warriors in the practice of assassination. An example of this was the Caliph Ali, who lived from 598 to 661 CE, who was murdered with a poison dagger to the head. This practice eventually evolved into the Order of Assassins, and by the 12th century, they were an absolute terror in the Middle East. It is therefore clear that combatants were supplied by various means. Mercenaries, conscripts, or, like the Vikings, just have a random collection of bloodthirsty people roughly running in the same direction. Out of the dark, <laughs> Out of the dark Ages, we um, got the Feudal Age. Feudalism invoked a structure where everyone was obliged to furnish certain duties as part of their homage and loyalty to their overlord. This eventually led to the creation of large national armies. And with that, we were finally going slowly back to something almost Roman. But army sizes would, would remain much smaller as nobody quite figured out how Roman logistics work. Oh, sorry. I, I was just thinking, if you uh, have your own sort of small army because you're a, a feudal lord and you're you're... A uh, guy the next village over has his own army because he's another feudal lord. Like, neighbor disputes must have gotten really interesting. I'm not quite sure how that actually worked, but I suspect both feudal lords would have pledged fealty to a king of some sort. 
Oh, but that doesn't mean that you're mates with the, the guy over. You, you both support the same football team, but that doesn't mean you have to be friends. Yeah, I, do, I, I suspect that actually happened a few times, but I don't actually ha- I don't have any documentation in that regard. I'm fairly certain that if one of them wanted to pillage his neighbor's village, he, he probably would have done so. I'm not entirely sure how much of a, a say his neighbor would have. And you know how we always say the wheels of justice grind slowly? And that's in modern times as well. Back then, I'm fairly certain they ground even more slowly. So maybe you pillage someone's village. Twelve years later, his son comes along and goes, "Hey, I'm going to I'm going to get you for that." I mean, of course, this is all speculation. Can we imagine arbitrating these things would have been exciting? I mean, I mean, you in old England, you had these assizes, traveling courts going up and down the country. You didn't actually have fixed courts like you do today for the most part. So I I don't think um. You would you'll be getting that much in the way of arbitration at least until the court comes knocking a, knocking on your door again. Uh, were, were it not the assize time? <laughs> no, we're not there yet. <laughs> so another interesting so the interesting thing that actually emerged out of the feudal age was the formation of national armies. This was not a quick process. Two factors made sure of this. One, the nature of warfare was often informal with informal insurgencies recorded across Europe. Second, national armies didn't really get standardized kit for quite a while. There's very little in the way of identifying friend or foe, turning battlefields into complete and utter chaos the moment battle was joined. So the, the modern kind of chivalrous notion of, of uh, large standing armies facing off against each other being the, the norm and asymmetric warfare where you don't know who the the guy you're fighting is or where he's going to show up or you know uh, when he's going to try and stick a dagger in your back being you know a, a modern innovation that's, that's that's not really true that it's it's always been this sort of messy horrid uh just just brawl full of surprises uh yeah it's always been absolute chaos uh so i think it was clausewitz who said no plan survives contact with the enemy and that's been true in antiquity as it is today. Battle is always a complete pandemonium. And if, say, during a few era, early bits of the feudal era, before you actually had national armies, moment you had two sides wearing pretty much the same tunics, probably uh, d- dirty brown or something like that, they'll be looking. They look quite similar. Once battle is joined, you can't really tell them apart. And this only really started to change during the Crusades, when the Franks, as a symbol of their unity, wore crosses sewn into the shoulder of their surcoats. I have no idea what a surcoat is, by the way. This just came from um, my primary source. Um, Various Christian nations then started adopting colors. The Knights Hospitaller adopted a white cross on a black background. Islamic armies also created uniforms. The Janissaries wore a uniform of green and yellow cloaks over their chainmail with white ostrich plumes. Those devastatingly expensive ostrich plumes. I mean, they're Janissaries. They're they're like elite they're like Ottoman the, the warriors. Tier mercenaries. Yeah, they're like the, the tier. They're, they're like the tier one operators of the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> high speed, low drag. <laughs> high speed, low drag. Big ostrich feather. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I, I would suspect the ostrich feathers are a little draggy, it's almost like a parachute. Uh, is, are they like tactical, tactical ostrich feathers? <laughs> tactical or ostrich feathers. Black. Jet black, yes, sir. Actually, you, jet black's actually quite easy to see at night. What you want is dark blue. Uh, I, th- I thought this through, sure. The insights I'm here for. Yes. So, 
With that, it was during the Crusades that we start to see the beginnings of the custom of a national uniform, which would subsequently feed into laws of war concerning the dressing of combatants to distinguish them from non-combatants, and would eventually turn into a near-universal disdain of informal combatants. At this point, all the law seemed to care about was how to get more men fighting for God and glory. There was still no consensus or law dealing with informal combatants. We'll deal with that after we deal with the Crusades as a whole, and it's really not that far away, chronologically speaking. So that's more or less the end of the bit on um, formal versus informal combatants in this episode and the laws regulating how combatants went to fight. Are you now feeling fairly secure, Mr. Shaw? Strong and stable. <laughs> Good. Wait, I, I don't quite understand this point. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. I'm feeling fairly secure. Um, because uh, it's about to get it's about to get a lot worse. Oh, we, well, we haven't. Are you, we ha- are you all we, strapped in? Yeah, we haven't actually started talking about any atrocities. We just looked at oh, oh, all, all we looked at has been formal versus informal combatants about how national armies are starting to coalesce, and we're we're going to eventually and um, more or less set the stage for future episodes where we look at how the laws of war treated informal combatants, i.e., very poorly, but. You get the idea. I can, I can see where they're coming from. You know, when you uh, when you go that extra mile and make sure that your uniform is the right color of mud brown, and uh, the other guy doesn't even make the effort, just turns up in whatever he's wearing. Oh, dickheads! <laughs> I know. You should. You must always show up to battle properly dressed. I mean, just gotta just gotta put the effort in. I mean, it's just rude. Otherwise, it just um, makes the rest of us look silly. So a lot of the time in later eras, we see a very poor treatment of informal combatants. By poor treatment, I mean atrocities, massacres, yada, yada. But at this time of history... A little history, bit of an understatement there. Yes. Uh, but in this, at this point of history, in terms of atrocities, people were a lot more equal opportunities, as you will soon see. There wasn't, so, there wasn't any of this, um, we're going to distinguish formal and informal combatants. They're going to murder, we're just going to murder a lot of them anyway. So... Well, let's move on to the treatment of captives in the early Middle Ages. I, uh, I imagine being a captive in the early Middle Ages was uh, not a, a fun or particularly long experience. You are correct on both counts. And I'm going to put, start by putting things into context. We live in an anomalous era. At no time in history has such a large proportion of humanity lived in such relative opulence. When I say relative opulence, I'm referring to our relative abundance of food, clean water, healthcare, and when I say healthcare, I mean healthcare based in actual science, and not homeopathy or something like that. Sure, I mean, you of all people would know that we probably shouldn't cut people to let the bad things out unless if you're removing like um, tumor. Like an abscess or like a, like a uh, like an appendix. Yeah, you're not actually cutting them out to let out the bad spirits. We're not like... just drilling holes in people's heads to let the bad spirits out. <laughs> yes. And that is modern medicine, which none of these people had. Although, so, fun fact, we still have not very... We still don't know how paracetamol works. You've got to be shitting me. Is well, not... I mean, we've got, we've, got a, we've got a pretty good idea. I mean, we've got some theories. I mean, it works, though, right? Yeah, it works. That's, a, that's the important bit. Empirically. Empirically. Yes. I mean, that's, uh, that's the purpose of the trials, isn't it? If it works, it works. Uh, I mean, assuming there are not, yeah. not too many of those um, side effect things. Eh, well, I mean, songs doesn't kill you. <laughs> That's a fairly low standard, and um, 
definitely boosts my confidence in modern medicine, but it's definitely a lot better than what they did back then anyway. And with that, I'm going to bring us back to the conversation about the early Middle Ages and the treatment of captives. So the conjecture to be made here is that history is a story of us as a species on an inevitable march of progress. Well, no, actually that's wrong. It's been up and down all over the place, and it looks like we're going through a bit of a down period right now with the super conservative lot seemingly wishing to drag us back to the early Middle Ages, but somehow still remaining in possession of integrated circuits. Anyway, that's just... Um... I, uh, I, I once had a conversation in a pub with somebody about uh, models of progress, uh, and I think we settled on calling them the uh, Battlestar Galactica model where nothing really changes, it all just goes in cycles. Um, and the Star Trek uh, model of progress, where the future is 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 bright and expands uh, uh, ahead of us, and um, we'll all be replicating our our dinners. And um, oh, I've not really not really done this one justice, have I? Uh, kind of. No, that's fine. I, I I know I know I know what you're talking about. So you see, what you're talking about is the Star Trek idea of. The, the galaxy is bright and full of wonders. However, because this is human history, it's a lot more Warhammer 40k okay. rather than Star Trek. Um, the, the galaxy is dark and full of terrors. You know, I, I like the idea that Star Trek and Warhammer 40k may actually exist in the same extended universe. And that, you know, the, the Dark Ages, the fall of man, that's what turned the Federation into the uh, the Empire of Mankind. What you're what you're thinking of is actually a video game. It's called Stellaris. You start off exploring, oh. and eventually you go around murdering the rest of your neighbors. Oh, oh, yeah! It's a four X strategy game. You should check it out, and I re- I heartily recommend it to all of our listeners as well. But other four X games are available. <laughs> well, I mean, we're talking about a four X game called Real Life over here, though it's a lot more Crusader Kings. <laughs> anyway uh let's go back down to uh let's get back to the topic and which is uh down periods it's not the first time stuff like this has happened in history the pax romana was by and large regarded as a golden age it was held as an era where human human ingenuity flourished and therefore something which ought to be emulated like in the renaissance let's look back at the last episode the Pax Romana was also an era where torture, rape, and genocide by marauding armies was very much acceptable. Captives were kept because it was profitable to do so. It was very good business to take captives, deprive them of every right you possibly could, and have them work for you for free. I think it's fortunate that a decline in the Pax Americana we seem to live in now gives us a much higher starting point to slide, out for, slide down from. Hopefully, it's a slide and not a cliff edge we fall off. But anyway... I hear wait, the. Wait a minute! Didn't the uh, didn't the Romans build their empire on slavery and uh, sort of require the constant expansion of their territory and uh, the the subjugation of the natives and uh, seizing of their natural resources in in order to make their civilization stable? Yes, that that is entirely correct. However, it was also far more peaceful than the time that followed, peaceful which is yeah, peaceful for the Romans. Yeah, yeah. I well, mean, the ones who aren't slaves or or gladiators, slaves or, or the neighbors, soldiers. basically. I there mean, was a, you... there were there were some Romans who had it pretty good. 
I mean, there were lots of Romans who had it pretty good, actually. They they invented the idea of social security. They gave out flour and sh- and um, food and things to poor Roman citizens. So there, there, there was something to be said about them, despite the fact that they are quite barbaric. But in any event, I'm, I'm heartened that where we are right now is a substantially higher point to slide down from. And uh, so I hear the unspoken question, how do you get worse than the treatment of captives during the Pax Romana? Well, a funny story, it always manages to do so somehow. So not too long ago, the, um, after the fall of... The hmm? Free Belgian Congo? That comes a lot later. We'll, we'll, talk, we'll definitely We're be talking about that. Here. Yeah, you're skipping way ahead. But um, we'll definitely be talking about that in a later episode. Uh, that's a fairly fairly gruesome period of history, actually, uh, to Belgians and their treatment of the Congolese. But during the early Middle Ages, things had shifted from captives to equal free money to let's kill them all. And these were not one-off episodes. It was very much how the business of warfare was conducted through the Middle Ages. And by tracking the treatment of captives, we can actually see a slide from taking people as slaves to just outright murdering the lot of them. There appears to have been very little law fettering the carrying out of such acts of gratuitous violence, and history is littered with so many examples. For example, in England, the year 635 CE, at the Battle of Winwade, nearly all 30 commanders of the Mercian army who had surrendered to Bernicia were slaughtered. I'm Pretty sure I'm pronouncing these names wrong because it's very old-timey English, I guess. Is it even English at this time? So, so was this like the norm uh, at this time? You expect that if you if you go to war and you fuck it, then you're you're dead because it it sounds like it doesn't really make for any real reason to surrender if you know that your head's going to end up on a pike. Ah, it sounds like it would it would be a bit of a an incentive to to fight to the last man to. Uh, really draw things out. You would think that, but you must remember, this is the early Middle Ages. Sometimes you really, you're back into the corner. You really can't fight because you're shitting out one and then puking up the other from dysentery. (laughs) There's really very little you can do. And um, if you have a spear through one of your knee ligaments and uh, you have a serious gastrointestinal problem. And even with all these massacres, there, there, there didn't so seem to be of any paramide. They just had death, pretty much. Uh... So, if you have no choice but um, to become a captive, and yeah, that's 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 kind of how things went. Uh, there are certain exceptions to this rule, of course, and we'll discuss them shortly. However, there doesn't appear to be much evidence of widespread condemnation of such massacres. Gratuitous violence against what would now be the enlisted men was just par for the course. Captured archers were executed by Henry II in 1153. Strongbow. Nothing to decide, by the way. This strongbow ordered a massacre of Irish prisoners taken at Waterford in 1170. King John ordered the murder of crossbowmen at Rochester in 1215. No quarter was given to prisoners in the battles of Lewes and Eversham in 1264 and 1265 between Henry III and Simon de Montfort. So this brings us to the concept of demonstrating the intent of giving no quarter. When the English unfurled the Red Dragon banner, or when the French unfurled the Oriflamme banner, it meant that no quarter was going to be given and the rules of chivalry would be ended. Certain points in history when they really hated each other, bloodthirstiness would overcome the profit motive. For example, when the cream of the French nobility were defeated at Courtrai in 1302, instead of ransoming the lot of them, the order was given to kill all 
of them that had spurs on, i.e. anyone who was riding a horse. Edward, the Prince of Wales, when fighting the Scots, he unfurled the Red Dragon banner. However, things didn't go so well for him at the Battle of Bannockburn in 1314, and it was the English that got massacred. No, put the bagpipes away. No, bagpipes away. I really shouldn't have. I'm not... Why... Why did I give you the soundboard? Oh, my God. Oh, flower of Scotland. Oh, God. When no. will Sure! Cut it out! <laughs> oh, I'm never, ever giving the soundboard to my co-host again. As always, let's get back to the episode. Oh, sorry. If you're uh, unfurling Big Banner to say... We're not going to show any mercy this time. Like, presumably, you're going to war. You're already kind of intending on on killing people. You're already assuming that it's going to be killer or, or be killed here. But you know, if you know that your enemy is 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 just going all out to annihilate everyone else in the field, isn't that? I mean, you got absolutely no no uh, incentive to surrender if it looks like you're going to be beaten. Like, you you know that it's going to be curtains for you either way. Um, we're actually about we're actually about to go into that. And sometimes some people do survive with a concept of ransom. So mm. let's add to the list of crimes, kidnapping on top of murder. Excellent. So Lady Justice is, as always, hot on the heels of these miscreants and not far behind. Emphasis is on a word behind. Legal scholars of the era were starting to develop jurisprudential concepts rooted in pre-existing sources of law, such as scripture. Kratin, the jurist, suggested in 1140 that with regard to warfare between Christians, the following should apply. In victory, mercy ought to be shown to the captive, especially to him from whom one need fear no disturbance of the peace. Let's focus on the word ought. Laws regulating the conduct of war at this point of history were explicitly stated to be suggestions. While we make fun of the Geneva Conventions as the Geneva Suggestions, they are not worded as such. And given the general international consensus as to the applicability, have a lot more teeth than the laws of war in the Middle Ages, which were pretty much entirely non-positive law. Be that as it may, some good did come out of this. Certain belligerents entered into bilateral agreements where they attempted to reach higher standards. In a battle in 1119 between Henry I of England and Louis VI of France, only three knights out of 900 were killed. However, I would read these numbers of caution because I'm fairly certain quite a few of them probably came out, came out with traumatic brain injuries. If you want to know what it's like to be a knight in battle, put a bell over your head and hit yourself over the head of a hammer. It's quite unpleasant. I don't. I do not. I do not speak from personal experience. I only speak from personal experience of having been clocked in the head of a long sword while wearing a fencing mask. Wait, don't you don't you do that for fun, Morgan? Uh, it is fun. At least when I I've seen videos of you on the weekend. Yeah, I mean, it is fun when I... The fun is when I clock the other guy over the head, not when I get whacked on the head. So <laughs> it's a bit I like how... you're going to take one with the other. Yeah, pretty much. You can't win everything. A contributing factor to these to so few knights dying is simply down to the fact that at this point in history, armor was kind of winning in a never-ending arms race between arms and armor. However, the knights that lost could well have been executed thereafter. And they were not. Magnanimous acts of clemency were also not unheard of. Sometimes, prisoners were unconditionally freed. For example, when the conflict ended at the Siege of Rochester, they were freed. 
Edward III seems to have practiced the freeing of captives in this manner more liberally than his contemporaries. So it really comes down to the individual commanders. So I suppose like thinking back to like the Romans where they capture somebody on the field of battle, they, they can become a slave and slaves are worth money. They can be forced to do work that's valuable. Was there some point you think where people you captured became more of a liability? They, they were now costing you more to to deal with, costing you more like you know, financially or, or politically to hold or to execute than, than it was worth. And so you, you didn't want to get into the business of taking uh, people captive. So in a way, that kind of... The economics of the thing changed. Um, the economics didn't quite change. It just took on a different form. And also, you had a rather big thing called Christianity, which was introduced around this time as well. So in response to that, we really need to start with looking at uh, the legal thinking moving, al- moving along at that time. For example, you had Giovanni D'Alegliano, a jurist at the University of Bologna, who stated, I believe that quarter should be granted to one who humbles himself and does not try to resist, unless the grant of quarter gives reason for fearing a disturbance of the peace, in which case he must suffer. So then we start moving towards what looks like a common understanding of how to deal with captives. And frankly speaking, what's a really nice early example of law backfiring. One of the many laws associated with the rise of Christianity is that Christians should not be enslaving other Christians. Do you see where we're going with this? Ah, there's the problem. Yes. You can't make them work anymore. They're not worth anything to you. (laughs) Correct. Now now you can't afford to pay to keep them alive. Now they're liabilities. Now they're liabilities. And I hear you say, good, no more slavery. Unfortunately, profit motive hasn't gone away. And it's a lot easier to claim piety and compliance when the evidence in the form of people in people who are living in bondage have been disposed of. What happened was people figured out since I can't enslave and profit off them and it's expensive to keep prisoners, they might as well be murdered. <laughs> that way your hands are clean in the view of the Lord. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, even while you, what's you, what are you going to do? You have no evidence. It's gone. He's dead. It's buried. <laughs> Yeah, pe- people die in wars. That's that's what happens. Yeah, exactly. It's just a casualty of the battlefield. Nothing. I definitely didn't stick a sword into him, and he definitely wasn't walking when he when he stuck his hands up. Yeah, there's no VARF for this one. Yeah, there's there's no video recordings. Can't prove it. <laughs> uh, so we've been talking a lot about a profit motive disappearing, but actually, people find a way when they were murdered, as we've been talking about in this section for a while. There appears to have developed a formal conceptualization of the ransom system. <laughs> Remember, we said we were going to add kidnapping to the list. Here we are. In theory, in theory, massacres shouldn't be committed, and you should be taking prisoners. In theory, again, once captured, a prisoner could not be executed unless they committed treason against their captor. When a soldier captured a prisoner, he was entitled to one third of the value of the prisoner. Another third would go to his feudal lord. And the final third went to the king. So uh, what happens if uh, you you take somebody prisoner, but then you can't find anybody to pay the ransom? I mean, presumably, you, you can't be expected to just keep them alive forever and then let them or, or let them go for free. Uh, remember, we were talking about murder earlier. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Ah, That's where it ah, happens. I see. Yes. <laughs> just revert back to plan A. <laughs> exactly. So let's look at how much each prisoner was worth. 
The value of a prisoner was usually determined by reference to one year's gross income of the prisoner. Ergo, a peasant was worth a few pence, an archer, about two pounds, and a scribe like Chaucer, about 15 pounds, which, which was a which fairly grand sum in those days. The value of a prisoner, however, would shoot up tremendously if they were a king or had substantial propaganda value. Take, for example, Joan of Arc. She was sold to the English for 10,000 gold crowns, which is frankly speaking an outrageous sum just to burn someone. Kings. They were ransomed for kingly fortunes. Romanus IV of Byzantium was ransomed for 1 million gold crowns. David of Scotland was worth 100,000 marks. Richard of England, the Lionheart, he was ransomed for 150,000 marks. None, however, came close to the ridiculous amount that John of France commanded, and that was 3 million gold crowns. Despite all of this formalization of ransoms, there didn't seem to be much in the way of the law as to the conditions in which these captives would be kept. For example, when the Black Prince captured King John of France, he was kept in pretty good conditions. On the other hand, you had Richard II. He died of starvation in the Tower of London not around, in around 1399 after being captured by Henry IV. Unfortunately, because humans are generally bastards, most captives were kept in truly terrible conditions. We've definitely moved past that, haven't we? It's, it's not torture if I do it. Exactly. It's, it's only torture when the other guy does it. I've asked my lawyer to draft a statement to that effect. Um, this is a perfect segue to the next part of the episode, actually. And uh, we're about to talk about torture, which was frequently inflicted upon these captives prior to murdering them. And this torture was inflicted for all sorts of reasons. As with today, we had lawyers who thought torture was a good idea. And they were definitely old-timey versions of the person who signed off on the legality of enhanced interrogation. So a brief sidebar here. I think you and I can both agree that torture does not work. You say whatever you think will stop the torture from continuing. You, I mean, in my case, you don't even need to torture me. You just need to threaten to torture me and I'll tell you whatever the hell you want to hear. Yeah, I mean, how is the torturer going to tell the time that you're speaking anything like the truth? Like you're just going to say whatever you think is going to make them stop. Yeah, it, it, it just doesn't work. I can't see the justifications for it coming from all sorts of people who should really know better. Anyway, the lawful application of torture was horrifically common in the early Middle Ages. It's really, really stupid. Torture was used to resolve judicial questions, and it was only in 1215 CE that the Fourth Council of Lateran prohibited using judicial tests or ordeals by hot or cold water or hot iron. Prior to this, there weren't really any restraints. So if you... Was he saying that he didn't want any... Uh, judicial tests or ordeals and these were specifically things that were being done or like just like you know carry on with the judicial ordeals but just lay off in the hot and cold water and iron I'm fairly certain they meant you probably shouldn't be torturing anyone to resolve a legal question however I'm not entirely sure this was followed so Uh, I've had my lawyer draft a statement in this case I think it it would be I had my priest draft a statement that said it's okay uh I mean, after this, you had the whole torture and execution of the Knights Templar, which uh, occurred in, I think it was late 13th century, definitely after the Fourth Council of the Lateran. So let's look at famous torturers through history. Attila the Hun. He was famous for his brutality. 
He seemed to be quite taken with the idea of impalement, definitely a predecessor of Vlad the Impaler. The Byzantine leader, Flavius Phocas, was partial to the rack, blinding and mutilations on a semi-industrial scale in the 7th century, uh, again with the Byzantines, after the Battle of Balathista in 1014 CE. Emperor Basil II of Byzantium blinded 15,000 Bulgar prisoners, leaving one in a hundred men with one good eye so he could lead his comrades home. Mutilation of... Yeah, it's pretty horrific. Mutilation... It's also like just the practicality to think like, I'm going to leave one guy with one eye so that so that uh, he can uh, point the way on the path. Yeah, it's uh, he thought things through. You can't can't fault him yeah. for not have not being forward thinking. Boy, yeah. Anyway, mutilation of prisoners was um also a fairly common practice for William the Conqueror. There really was no law restricting such barbarity, and even the threat of retaliation in the event of a future loss didn't restrict such uh, practices. Obviously, when fighting against irregulars, informal forces there is even less of a disincentive not to engage in such ludicrous acts of wanton violence. Henry III, kind of famous for that, he sort of invented hanging, drawing, and quartering to deal with rebels in Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. This torturous form of murder would remain on British statute books until 1814. William Wallace met his end this way. No, backpipes, backpipes, no, stop. Every time I mention the Scots, you're going to do that, aren't you? <sighs> oh, flower of Scots. <laughs> uh, no, I'm definitely going to, to cut that out. So when we talk about hanging, drawing, and quartering, the other people who met this end were... The, the list of people who met their end in this manner is not a short one. Of course, this begs the question, did non-positive law even try to limit this? Guess what? Humans are horrible, as we've established, so no. Judicial systems at the time imposed horrendous penalties, such as burning, branding, mutilation, breaking on a wheel, and so on. Sometimes, these judicial punishments overlapped with captives in war, and they were tortured and executed due to theological disputes. For example, the persecution suffered by the Waldansians and the Knights Templar. So with the Knights Templar, it's, it's, it's quite interesting how they were convicted of all their crimes of heresy, fornication, worshipping the statue of Baphomet, etc., blah, blah, blah. Pretty much every single one of them were tortured into confessing. So uh, I remember reading a statement not too long ago where one of them, a few of them actually said, yes, I was tortured, but however, this confession was given freely and voluntarily. Clearly in the back of this, this, this fellow's mind is, okay, I'll, I'll just confess, just don't torture me again. To what degree was that part of the plan, do you think? Like, they... They knew that these things, uh, these charges were bollocks, or like they kind of thought that maybe they were real, um, and they wanted to torture them to make sure. No, they all Which knew was that the torture kind of part of the whole, uh, the whole thing. They were trying to like ruin these people's lives and and then kill them, or or that was just a, a side effect. The, the torture was absolutely completely necessary because the charges are complete rubbish. For example. Do you know that there is an offshoot of the Knights Templar that still exists today? That's because the Portuguese king at the time refused to enforce the order of the church, unlike with most of the other states under the influence of the Catholic Church. And so the Knights Templar in Portugal, they just renamed themselves to the Order of Christ. They still exist today. So in terms of torture, things didn't seem to change too much from antiquity. 
However, certain good things also seem to have continued from antiquity. For example, there seems to be a continuation of non-positive law in terms of respecting the dead, at least for a time, within the within a common cultural background. When you start going into religious wars, things things become different. The Normans left huge wooden crosses to remember the dead at battlefields as early as 777 AD. The taboo against disrespecting the dead was evident from certain situations. For example, William the Conqueror booted one of his knights from his retinue in 1066, as the knight had smacked the body of the fallen English king, Harold Godwinson, with his sword. Henry V treated a dead Frenchman after the Battle of Agincourt with full honours before burial. There are always exceptions to the rule, and there are countless examples of the dead being disrespected. The English seem quite fond of sticking the heads of some of their enemies on sticks and decorating the Tower of London with them. Most famously, William Wallace's. Oh, God, is it? Uh, no, I'm going to. I'm not. I'm, let's. I'm going to skip every mention of William Wallace following this, and so things do seem to be even worse than they were in antiquity. Now let's move on to the treatment of captives during the Crusades. I guess the only way from where we were, what we were just talking about, is up. But before going into the treatment of captives in the Crusades as a topic, it's probably worth talking about some background. Thus far, I've been quite Eurocentric in what I've talked about, but that's because my sources are Eurocentric, and I i mean, I guess I can be faulted for not looking beyond that, but I am lazy. Anyway, talking about the Crusades necessarily means looking at the Muslim world, and there appears to be quite a bit of an interesting difference in how captives were dealt with there. It seems to be a feature of Islamic expansion that they didn't run around murdering all captives as was common in European warfare at the time. In the 7th century, when Islam started its initial wave of expansion by the sword, they took most of the inhabitants of cities such as Damascus, Antioch, Alexandria, and Cappadocia as slaves. So they'd uh, kind of taken the Roman lesson to heart then. I guess. But then again, uh, there's, a, there's a certain context to this sort of slave taking in that they didn't take fellow Muslims as slaves. They only went for... Is Christian? Yeah, pretty much. It, 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 you know, Abrahamic faiths, they're quite similar. There was so, no profit motive there, so you could only take the, the, the non-Muslim people's slaves. Pretty much. Uh, I, I guess they would, when dealing with other Muslims, they would just murder them. A bit like how Christians treated other Christians. You can't take them as slaves. So from profit to liability. So you had some jurists from the Islamic world, such as Shaibani, who in the late 8th century suggested that the Quran stipulated that prisoners of war should not be killed, but ransomed or enslaved. The legal theory in the Islamic world is slowly being built such that murdering your captives isn't the first thing that the uh, combatants think of. And this was further developed by another jurist, Nasir al-Din al-Tusi, who stated in the mid-13th century that, so far as possible, taking prisoners is preferable to killing and has many advantages. You can keep prisoners as slaves or hostages to be exchanged or force the enemy to do as we want, whereas there is no advantage in killing. Above all, do not give the order to kill after a victory. Do not be fanatical and commit excesses of belligerence. After victory, an enemy should enjoy the same status as a subject or a protected slave. Given that the Islamic world was expanding at a time, guess which major empire was right on their doorstep and in the way? That's right, the Byzantines. Given the proclivity for taking captives, it seems that the Byzantines also picked up on the worth of keeping captives around for exchanges 
and there were many prisoner exchanges and ransoms fulfilled by both sides. By the time of the Crusades, this habit of prisoner exchanges between Christian and Muslim belligerents had expanded to the Crusaders as well. For example, the end of the Third Crusade was marked by the Treaty of Jaffa in 1215, and that is where Richard I and Saladin agreed to return each other's prisoners. The Fifth and Sixth Crusades also ended with a major prisoner exchange. This is kind of like uh, when you're coming home from holiday and you realize you still got uh, a whole bunch of pesos left in your wallet. You've got to get rid of them somehow. <laughs> I guess, yeah. You go to a local money changer, in this case, um, the enemy commander, and say, yo, I've got, I've got this lot, guys. Yeah, I, I want to go home. Can, can I get some of my guys back? You can have these guys. Uh, an equitable deal. So remember when I said earlier that there was a Christian prohibition on taking Christian slaves? Well, now you've got a whole other religious group to enslave. Sadly for our would-be slavers, their target frequently fought back and took slaves of their own, and they were actually quite successful at it. Apparently, there sometimes where there were so many Christian slaves in circulation in certain Muslim cities that each slave was worth as little as a pair of sandals. On the other hand, sandals were particularly expensive. Um, I don't think so. Uh, it's just that there were so many slaves that you know supply demand, so much supply that the the price has to go down. Basic economics, mate. Uh, at some point, though, doesn't your slave become worth less than the food and water that it takes to keep them alive, and then? You know, you replace your slaves quicker than you replace your sandals. Yeah, that's, that sounds about right, actually. Yes, you know, the life of a slave is nasty, brutish, and short. That's why, it's, that's why it's illegal and should be illegal. The Muslim powers weren't the only ones who were busy taking slaves. The Christians did so as well. The Knights of St. John, who lived on the island of Malta, they were, frankly speaking, a bunch of really well-funded and well-equipped pirates. They did a roaring trade in targeting Muslim vessels. And they were so successful that by the year 1720, there were around 10,000 Muslim slaves on the island of Malta. And that's a lot if you consider how tiny Malta actually is. I mean, come on, World War II, at the start of the breakout of hostilities, the Royal Air Force had a grand total of three Gloucester Gladiator biplanes guarding that island, appropriately named Faith, Hope, and Charity. I mean, you're going to need a lot of that when dealing with um, fairly modern BF-109s. So... Let's not assume that enslavement and or ransom was always the case in the Crusades. Richard Lionheart was known for occasionally showing clemency when fighting in Europe. However, like other lads on tour, common sense seems to have deserted him when he went on tour to the Middle East. After he captured Arca in 1191, he had 2,700 Muslim prisoners, including women and children, murdered. Of course, the Lionheart didn't have a monopoly on murder, and Saladin ordered that unless the Templars and Hospitallers, who were captured, converted to Islam, after the Battle of Hattin, they were to be executed. The knights, being good Christian boys, refused and were accordingly murdered. Saladin then ordered that the same approach be taken with any other Templars and Hospitallers captured. Since we're a law podcast, we like to talk about loopholes. Around the 14th century, towards the tail end of the Crusades, we had a madman rise out of what is now Uzbekistan. We know him as Tamerlane. He seemed to really like murder. In one instance, some 3,000 Christian soldiers surrendered. He had previously promised that he would not draw their blood, but he also really wanted to murder them. Sure, do you have any suggestions what he did? Uh, did he try strangling them all? Uh, you're pretty close. It came. He buried them all alive. Drowning them? No. Oh, wow. he, he buried them all alive. So you, wow. you, were, you were pretty much on the money there in terms of um, cutting off the air supply. 
but this being the 14th this being the 14th century you can't really put them in a vacuum chamber it's kind of like when a genie offers you a wish you know yeah when a finger on a monkey paw curls mm-hmm. um, on a related note I've decided that before I make any further wishes in this monkey's paw I'm definitely going to have to draft some kind of written agreement with it yeah you really should as with most of your agreement as with most of your dealings what you want is a written agreement signed sealed and delivered it's the paw. How does the paw mark the document? I don't know. Fingerprints? Do monkeys have fingerprints? Probably. Yeah, primates. Uh, whatever. Next time, next episode, I'll get some sort of um monkey specialist. Zookeeper? <laughs> do you know any zookeepers? <laughs> um, I, I do know somebody who's in vet school. Oh, yeah. I remember we, we had some vets, vets in our shooting club. I mean, you have horse doctors. Uh, it's they're, they're... like people doctors, but for horses. Yeah, it... Do you bring a captive bolt gun into the operating theater? Uh, I mean, I don't really go into the operating theater much. I'm not a surgeon, so uh, I no. mean, Okay, fine. Do you do you bring a captive bolt gun to A and E? Somebody comes in with a broken leg, and you go, right? Sorry, can't fix that. Bang. I think that the legal and ethical norms which I work within require me to answer no to that question. <laughs> mm, I, I like the disclaimer. So uh, back to Tamerlane. Uh, he's. He's implicated in a whole bunch of mass murders after the Battle of Tannenberg in 1410, which ended the Baltic Crusade. Only a few high-value knights were allowed to live to be ransomed. Quite a lot of them were, I quote, burnt alive in their armor like chestnuts. That's quite an unpleasant mental picture. On top of the inter-religious enslavement and ransom, when it came to interfaith combat, the usual restrictions on desecrating the dead did not seem to exist. Christian armies frequently chopped the heads off the Muslim dead and stuck them on pikes for psyops purposes. This happened at Nicaea in 1097, Ascalon in 1153, and Tiberius in 1187. When the Crusaders won a battle outside Antioch in 1098, they chopped a bunch of heads off and lobbed a few hundred of them over the city walls while they besieged it. In a tit-for-tat move, some 1,000 Christian heads were taken back to Aleppo in 1133 where Muslim leaders paid a bounty for them. So basically, you bring a Christian head and someone somewhere is going to pay you for it. How, so, how do they tell if it's a Christian head? Um, I don't know. They look a bit like you. I mean, is there anything stopping you from like getting one of your guys' heads and uh, you know, changing the hairstyle? or I don't know. Putting a, putting a different hat in it. Mm. It feels like if the incentive is to bring in heads and call them Christian, then like... That doesn't necessarily drive the kind of behaviors you really want. Um, I actually don't know about this. I'll need to go conduct a bit more research. I, I, I do suspect it might have been a bit like the time uh, British authorities in India. It's a Hanoi problem. Uh, no, no, wasn't it the... Um, no, no, I think it was the uh, British British India snake problem, where they said, we'll, hmm. we'll, pay, we'll give you money if you bring in a dead snake. So they started breeding snakes. So they started breeding snakes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like, fucking fantastic. I love human ingenuity. <laughs> so This is the, the entire genie wish problem right here. Exactly. Be careful what you wish for. You got, make sure you phrase your requests properly. Get a solicitor involved. Exactly. So the Muslims kind of also rep- repaid the Christians in kind in terms of sticking heads on pikes. So in 1153, as we said earlier, at Ascalon, where the Christians stuck Muslim heads on pikes, the Muslim defenders hung bodies of the captured and killed crusaders over the battlements. So, captured and killed, hang the bodies up over the battlements where the other Christians can see them. At Tiberius, where the Christians all stuck heads on pikes, 
Saladin did the same thing, stuck Christian heads on pikes to show to them. This act of desecration would continue up to the end of the Crusades. If it's interfaith violence, do whatever the hell you want. We're going to end this episode pretty much here because I got some feedback that episode two at one hour and 45 minutes was way too long. I have therefore decided to split the discussion on relating to the early Middle Ages to the Crusades into several episodes. In this episode, we covered how combatants treated each other and how combatants were regulated. We'll be looking at non-combatants in the next one. Oh no, we're going to look at how the defenseless are treated. As always, expect the worst, and despite that, you should still prepare to be disappointed. So, sure, how was your first time on this podcast? It sounds almost like the history of humankind, the history of humankind at war is uh, just full of people being really dreadful to each other and doing horrible things and by and large getting away with it. I suppose I like the idea that there's some kind of law that kind of stops people being being unjustly nasty to each other, but I guess I, I wonder if the real problem with having any sort of strong legal protections for competence and for non-competence and, and for people just standing nearby is that you, you're going to need a, somebody with a bigger army to come and beat up that guy's army if he does some war crimes, right? And, and I guess for most of history, we didn't really have that. Pretty much. And even today, who is going to stop America from committing war crimes? No one. If, uh, if, isn't it their official policy to invade the Hague if anyone tries it? Uh, I don't actually know that, but uh, I, th- I suspect the Americans are actually one of the better ones compared to all the stuff that's happened in the last few millennia. I guess the other thing is just like visibility, because we we only know about the the history of uh, you know combat from what people wrote down and and all the stuff that happened that you know wasn't worth writing down or nobody who could who could write uh, saw or that just hasn't survived today. Like we. We don't know about it. And back then, if it was like a, a small local conflict between two groups, I guess, like it would just be the people directly participating who really knew what happened. Yeah, that's a pretty good point, actually. Where I mean, I don't I think I don't think 2000 years from now, anyone's going to be able to find anything about how Millwall FC beat up the neighboring club. I think the eminent legal scholar Taylor Swift put it best when she said, um, nobody, no crime. Was <laughs> it Taylor Swift? Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty good place to end the episode. And I don't know when I'll see you again, but if I do, you are definitely not getting the fucking soundboard. Sure. Go away. Mm-hmm.